Maybe you can relate to this. I think a lot of people really can. One of my least favorite things in the whole, like the known universe, is group projects in school. Ah, yes, I see the, I see the grimaces all over the auditorium. I hated group projects. I hated them. Hated, 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 hated. Least favorite thing in the world. First of all, I'm extremely introverted. You wouldn't know it, you know, when I stand up here, but I'm extremely introverted. And so having to force myself to work with people that I didn't really know very well, like that was just Oh, torture, especially in junior high. You know, you've got all these cliques and, you know, people are different than you and they always put you in the group with the person that was like, I mean, I was in, 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 in this group of people, you know, I wore combat boots and flannel shirts and, you know, the cheerleaders didn't really talk to me. So I was always in a group project with a cheerleader. Ugh, it was horrible. Okay. And then especially if you, like, if you have to work on it during class, that's not that big of a deal. But if you have to do it outside of school, then like you have to figure out like whose house you're going to go to and when are you going to meet and when are you work on it. It's like a, it's, it's a whole thing. It's horrible. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little traumatized, you guys. I'm a little traumatized. But the worst part, the worst part of a group project was when you had to divide up the tasks. Who is going to do which part? Who is going to do which part? Which section, okay? Like, you know what I mean? Like, one person is like, well, I will write the conclusion. And then someone else is like, well, I'll get the introduction then. And there's always that one person, the one person that says, I'll compile everything and proofread. Lol. We are on to you. If you are that person, that means you don't have to write anything. That's why you, that's why you volunteer for that part, because you don't have to write. Group projects. I hated group projects. I hated dividing them up in sections because you know what else I knew? I knew the universal law of group projects. Do we know this law? There is always, always going to be someone that would flake out without fail. They weren't going to do their part. They were going to leave everybody else hanging every time. So I've made it clear to my children and my husband in my last wishes, that when I die, I would like all of the people who I have had to participate in group projects with to be my pallbearers <laughs> so that they may let me down one last time. <laughs> I know, it's so bad. It's such a bad joke. But group projects were the worst. It was the worst. And today we're continuing our discussion about one of the biggest group projects that there ever was, the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. We're continuing in our summer sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, and we've been encouraging everyone to kind of read along with us as we unpack the story. We're going chapter by chapter for the rest of the summer. Today we're going to look at chapter three, and you can go ahead and start turning there if you like. Just by way of a brief summary, in case you've missed the last couple of weeks, uh, the people of Israel had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. It was about 150 years prior to when our story takes place. Um, and at that time, when that initial captivity happened, the city was all but leveled, all but destroyed. And then um, subsequently, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians, and they, they took over kind of you know, handling all of the, 
all of the, the captives in Israel, and, and they had a little bit of a different style of rule. And so they had allowed um, some of the Jewish people in a couple of different waves to return home and begin to rebuild their, their city in Jerusalem. Um, but no one had taken on the job of rebuilding the wall until Nehemiah. We've learned over the last couple of weeks that Nehemiah was a trusted servant of the king of Persia and that he had a rich connection with God from which he drew comfort and courage and wisdom. And because he lived his life in that space, Nehemiah was perfectly positioned for this moment in time. So the king of Persia sent Nehemiah, this Jewish man, back to Jerusalem to oversee the rebuilding of the wall, and he sent him with every practical resource that he would need. The full backing of the Persian government to rebuild this Jewish city. So, it's a pretty cool story. It's a pretty cool story. There were a few critics that opposed Nehemiah and and the project, and they'll factor into the story quite a bit later. But chapter 2 closed out, which we looked at last week. Chapter 2 closes out with Nehemiah boldly and confidently declaring, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. This week we're going to look at chapter 3 together. And if you read it already, if you're reading along with us, um, as we're asking you know, everyone to consider doing this summer, you might be wondering how on earth we're going to get a coherent message out of this chapter. Because uh, pretty much the whole chapter is just a list. It's a list of the groups of people, which section of the wall they worked on. They talk about different gates and all kinds of stuff. It's just a big list. But there's some good stuff tucked in there. So, so trust me, I've got a plan. I'm going somewhere, okay? Basically, the point of this chapter is to illustrate the fact that this is the mother of all group projects. At this time, the wall of Jerusalem, I looked it up, it seemed like at at that time in history, it was probably a a length of about a mile and a half, you know, all the way around. That's a pretty significant distance. I think the modern day city um, has a wall that's about two and a half miles. Um, But at that time, in Nehemiah's day, it was about a mile and a half. Here's what blew my mind when I was just just reading some of the, the background about this project. So when I would think about it in my mind, I would, always, I would always imagine that it was a group of people that started in one place and they were just like all working in the same spot and they just built and built and built until they made their way around. That's what I imagined in my mind. But as, as I was reading in the commentaries, getting ready for this message, if I'm understanding it correctly, what, what I think they're saying is that different groups of people worked on different sections of the wall like simultaneously. And why does that blow my mind? I mean, a lot of our engineering students are gone for the summer, but if they were here, they would get that. Like, these people did not have any of the modern-day tools. They didn't have surveying things and whatever. Um, But, like, that's a big deal to coordinate because it has to match up. Like, it's you got to figure out really carefully if this section of the wall is going to hit this section of the wall, or she has some pretty wonky stuff you're going to have to do. It's got to match up, y'all. It's got to match up. Can you imagine the kind of collaboration and the communication that had to happen to make this possible? Like, I can't even, I can't even fathom that. I can't. So I think about what it looks like at my house when something has to get fixed. Um, I'm really fortunate that my father-in-law and my brother-in-law are both um, 
professional contractors. That's what they've done for a living. And, and Vince has worked with them on and off, you know, for his whole life. From the time he was small, he was, you know, picking up nails for his dad or whatever. So we've got three construction-minded people that will often, you know, come to the table when we need something repaired at our house. And there's nothing quite as funny, but it's kind of like a, like a tense and anxious a little bit funny as the three of them trying to stand around and figure out what is the best way to go about this thing. Like, what's, what's, what's the plan here? What's the approach that we're going to take? In Nehemiah's project, there's hundreds of people. There's multiple community leaders that are serving under him. I wonder if they squabbled about the calculations or the proper technique. The younger men wanted, might have wanted to try like a new technique that they had learned about for like bricklaying. I don't know. And they're like, hey, we got this great idea. And then the older men were like, no, that's, we've never done it that way. The old way is fine. You know, do you think it was something like that maybe? The mother of all group projects. There are principles in this story of Nehemiah that we can take and we can lay them over just about any significant undertaking in our lives. For starters, everyone is needed in the effort. Everyone is needed. Ideally, whatever we are doing should be done in community, and community should include everyone because everyone is needed. We're surely all familiar with this analogy that we use of the church as a body, and it's made up of many parts. And we understand immediately when we use that imagery, eyes have different functions than toes, than ears do, than hands do. But if any one of those body parts was missing, there would be a loss that would be created by their absence, and that would be felt. Each of these groups of people that were assisting with the wall, they contributed to a different section or a different gate. And had that whole group not been there, the loss created by their absence would have been felt. Both in lack of a finished product, but also in loss of time. Because when everybody's working at the same time together, you know, everything's going to get done a lot faster. Furthermore, it's not particularly evident in this chapter, but we're going we're gonna to hear a little bit about it later. Um, the builders developed the kind of camaraderie that can only grow out of a shared experience. There's something special that happens when we're part of a group of people and we're working toward a common purpose and we're working together for something that's bigger than ourselves. Something wonderful and something beautiful. And so that's an important dynamic that's in play here. Nehemiah, the only reason that he's the guy that the, the book is named after is because big group of super talented and dedicated indi- individuals that doesn't really roll off the tongue quite the same as his name. But everyone is needed. The church today should operate like this. This is the way we should be doing things. We get this, we get this so screwed up sometimes. Like if we're just being honest, we mess this up, Right? We think, this is, this is how we think. There are some people, the pastor, the worship leaders, the children's church workers, some people do church. And the rest of everybody else goes to church. 
But that's totally wrong. That's totally wrong. Church is not a service that we provide and everyone else consumes. Church is more like this band of of wall builders in Nehemiah. Yes, Nehemiah was the overseer. He was the one that had to watch out for the way that everything worked together, but the work was done by everybody. And the way we say this in the vineyard is everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play. It's not just the pastor's or the leader's privilege to minister, but each and every one of you has a role to play in making God's love known to this world. I am no more qualified to pray for someone or share God's love than you are. No more. This is my role. Like, I have a, I have a role to play. I, I point us in the direction that I think God is pointing, and I try to, like, coordinate and connect the things that we need for us to all go in the same direction. But without, without you guys, I could no more... No more than Nehemiah could build this wall by himself single-handedly. I cannot lead this church without all of you to do the work of the ministry. All are needed. All are needed. You are needed. I would ask you to resist the idea that someone else is taking care of things. If you're not engaged, you're missing. You're missing. We are missing you. Your absence is felt. Everybody gets to play and everybody is needed. Now, there, there's a couple of common snags to this like ideal scenario that we run into. And fortunately for the organization of this particular sermon, I'm so excited, both of them are tucked into Nehemiah chapter 3. They're tucked in where you might not notice them because you're just like, I don't know, I, maybe it's just me. But when I hit one of these list chapters, I just skim it. I just skim it. But these, these little nuggets are tucked in here where you might not notice them. So check this, check this one out. Verse 5. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. Sometimes... People choose not to participate. People choose not to participate. These guys, they looked around at all this amazing stuff that was happening. They looked at, at this huge project and all the people working together. They looked around at all the, all the awesomeness and they went, nah. Nah. You knew there were going to be some flakes in this group project. I told you every single time. Every single time there's a flake. There always is. You know what the commentary said about this guy, these guys? What they said, what, what was their problem? They were aristocrats. They disdained manual labor. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. They wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. They were, they were too good for it all, apparently. Just a little bit too good. Anyone has the prerogative, anytime, anytime, to choose not to participate in the great life of the family of God and the story of God. You can choose not to participate. I think mostly we've been trained to think that the people that are 
not participating are those that are unchurched, those that are outside of faith, those that have not yet met Jesus. Those are the people that are not participating. But I would suggest to you that within the church culture today, there are a far greater number of people that have simply fallen victim to the deceit of the consumer mindset and approach to church. The work is for other people to do and for me to enjoy. Summed up in a nutshell. And in large part, the, the church has accommodated that posture because that's what, that's what the experts tell us will grow churches. All of the books and the blogs and the articles. This is what they tell you to do. Identify a felt need and meet that need and your church will grow. The problem is, the problem with this is that Jesus doesn't care if our churches grow does not care one bit. He cares if the people inside them grow. He cares if we grow. And the Bible links service to maturity. As Jackie, one of our wonderful board members, has so eloquently put it, guests... Visitors sit at the table and they're served and they're waited upon. Family are the ones that cook and serve and help clean up. Family are the ones that do the dishes. Have you thought about where you fit in our family here at Vineyard? Have you thought about that? Have you found a place to serve? If you haven't, I'd like to invite you to consider doing so. And I'd sure be happy to talk to you about that, as would any of our other leaders, about where is a place that will fit with, you know, the things that make you feel alive and the way that God's wired you and created you to be. Of course, we always have this, like, kind of disclaimer that there's lots of ways that you can be a servant that don't involve a schedule or a ministry team or something organized, and that is true. That is absolutely true. And we want to we have grace for everybody's seasons in life and all those kind of things. But I, I just, there's a little bit of a caution there. Just want just to caution you to be really honest with yourself in this place. You know, if that's where you're at. I have found it true in my life that I have often over-spiritualized my own excuses. So, there's that. So some people choose to exclude themselves. But the other snag in the everyone gets to play scenario is that some people are ignored or even ostracized. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. We could come up with just about any category of people and we could find a church context in which they would be excluded. Women, minorities, LGBTQ individuals, those are some of the most common targets of this in our day and age. Let me show you something that I never noticed. I told you guys I love this book. I've read Nehemiah dozens of times over the course of my life. I've never, ever seen this because I was doing the thing I was talking about a minute ago. I was skimming it. So I've never seen this verse, never noticed it. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 12 
It says, Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler over a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Yeah, that's what I'm talking, with the help of his daughters. Are you kidding me? How did I never see that before? It's so cool. Not only were they helping, but they didn't talk about what the women did in the Bible. They said 5,000 people got fed and they didn't even tell you there were 12,000 women and children. They didn't get mentioned. But for whatever reason in this chapter, not only were they drawn in and they were included, but they got credited and it was recorded for all of time. With the help of his daughters, he rebuilt that section of that wall. That's amazing. I love that. I love that because mm, all throughout the Bible, if you're looking for it, if you see it, if you have eyes to see it, there are indications of God's heart toward those that tend to be marginalized. It's in there. It is. This is the secret. God loves the underdog. That's who he is for. He longs for everyone to be a part of his family. And I think he is especially tender toward those who tend to get pushed to the outskirts, especially tender. And that's good news for those of us that belong to one of those categories. That is good news for me. Good news for me in a part of the country where there are plenty of people who think I don't have any right to stand up in front of this church and teach and much less, oh my word, the lead pastor, are you kidding me? I am so fortunate. I am so thankful to be a part of a movement that affirms the leadership of women in any level of ministry. And I am so grateful that I was blessed with a mentor who treated me according to my gifting and not according to my gender. So thankful. And from my position of influence here, I have the opportunity to extend that same inclusion that I was shown to others. And that's what I intend to do. That's absolutely the kind of church that we wanna be. Because I truly believe with every fiber of my soul that that's the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. A family with open doors and open arms that invite everyone into this kingdom life. And we can all, together we can discover God's love for us and our part in his big story. And that means, you know, you got, it means like, if we're being real, that means some people are going to be upset with us, right? Because they don't understand. It reminds me of this guy that I read about that was always in trouble with the religious leaders for hanging out with and eating with and loving and serving and healing all the wrong people. I think we're in good company if we're hated for the reasons that Jesus was hated. I think we're in good company there. As one of my favorite authors, Rachel Held Evans puts it, What makes the gospel offensive is not who it keeps out, but it's who it lets in. Who it lets in. This has always been the case. 
This is why Jesus was murdered by his own countrymen and betrayed by his own disciple because they were so committed to their systems of religion that they completely and utterly lost connection to the father heart of God. So I'll finish with this parable that Jesus told to illustrate this truth. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 22. And we'll start in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and he said, tell those who have been invited that I've, I've prepared my dinner. Everything's ready. My oxen, fattened cat, cattle have been butchered. Everything's ready. Come to, come to the wedding banquet. Come. It's time. It's time for the party. But they paid no attention. What did they do? They paid no attention. And they went off, one to his field and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. So he sent his army, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the ones that were left, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So here's what I want you to do. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find. The bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Filled with guests. There, there is a caution here in this story for those of us who have been friends of the king for a long time. We can sometimes get a little bored with his endless invitation to the big party at his table. We get a little bored. We've got our own stuff to do, our own fields to tend to, our own businesses to be about building our own kingdoms. And we can miss the party that way. We miss the party. Meanwhile, look at who God invites. Who does he draw in? Anyone you can find, the good and the bad. Everyone you can find, the good and the bad. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is needed. And everyone should be loved with all the fierceness of the love that God has for them. No matter what our stories and no matter what our struggles happen to be. Everyone is needed. We all have a choice. We have a choice as to whether or not we will participate. We can choose not to. We can choose not to. 
like the friends of the king who had better things to do, or like the older brother of the prodigal son who wouldn't go into the party because he was so pissed that his brother was getting away with something. He wouldn't go to the party. We could be that guy. We could be that guy if we choose. We can serve our own interests or sulk in the corner at the grace that is shown to whoever we don't think deserves it. You guys, you guys know this. You know this. None of us deserves it. None of us deserves it. I'm sorry. I love you. You're my favorite people in the whole wide world, but you don't deserve it. And neither do I. Neither do I. Jesus has been so kind to me. He continues to be so kind to me. And he's been kind to you. So let's remember that and together, let's fight together to continue to make this space, Vineyard Rala, a space where everyone is included. Because God's heart is for every single person on this whole planet to know the warmth of his love for them. And that's what the gospel is all about. And if that's not what we're about, what are we doing? What are we doing? Everyone is needed. I hope you choose to participate. I hope you choose to participate because we're going to invite everybody to come. And that includes you. That includes you. All right. Let's pray.